Welcome, my name is Loriana Hernandez Aldama, two-time cancer survivor and patient advocate, and you are listening to Stage Free, the place where we help cancer patients find the tools and resources they need to master survival. Cancer survivorship begins the day you are diagnosed. Over time, you may beat it or you may learn to live with it. Whatever the outcome, you probably wanna talk about it, and that's where we can help. Each week, I will share my insights and personal experience along with notable experts and cancer survivors. Together, we can help patients navigate the complicated road all survivors must travel. The goal, we want everyone to have an equal chance to not only survive, but most importantly, to thrive. Hi everyone, I am so honored to be your host for Stage Free. My name is Loriana Hernandez Aldama, and this is really a dream of mine to pivot and leverage my years as an Emmy award-winning journalist, and then use my real-life experience as a two-time cancer survivor to educate and empower others going through the same journey that I may have gone through. Whether you're a cancer thriver, survivor, we wanna help you get there. You know, you are a survivor from the day of diagnosis. And during my leukemia battle with AML leukemia, I always said, if I live, I will serve. And I'm honored to be serving by introducing you to some amazing experts, including today's guest. She is brilliant. I can't wait for you to meet her. My friend, Dr. Marianne Lesberg, she is Chief of Breast Medical Oncology at Yale Cancer Center. You can't get better than that. She is off the chart amazing. Also an associate professor of medicine, medical oncology, recognized for her patient-focused care, numerous awards that she's won being rated by Forbes, one of the top breast medical oncologists in the nation. So Dr. Lesberg, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so thrilled to have you and especially to talk about Breast Cancer 101. 101. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an important topic and Thank you, Loriana, for all the advocacy and education efforts that you do. It really does make a difference. Thank you. And I know that you really feel as well that patient education is so important. Yes, so much so. I think um, we, we see a, a difference in our clinics every day when patients who come in and they have their no, notebooks and support partners or friends with them and they're asking questions. Um, we, we, of course, try to give the same information to each and every patient, but I think those that have done a little bit of reading can actually get a lot more out of those visits, for sure. Yes, and in another podcast, we're going to talk about how to find the proper research and reading. But today with Breast Cancer 101, one thing I, I want to get started with is so many times, especially having a nonprofit, Armor Up for Life, and being a survivor and being out there, people come up to myself and my sister, who is a survivor, and they say, oh, I have breast cancer, what do I do? And we're like, well, what kind of breast cancer? And they say, what do you mean, what kind? And I'm saying, well, is it HER2, ERPR positive? Like, I'm HER2 negative, ERPR positive. And they're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm like, well, what's your oncotype? I don't know what you're talking about. So is that, it's, I guess I'm thinking that when you go through a diagnosis, as I've been twice, that the first time you hear it, you don't hear anything else after the doctor says you have cancer. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There is a ton of information. Often people just describe medical jargon as like a whole new language that you're walking in and a lot of terminology are thrown at you. So so some of the information surely has been heard before. um, And maybe just there was a lot of overwhelm and shock. And once you hear the word cancer, you know better than me, it's hard to focus 
um, mm. on the details sometimes. However, it, it also comes back to the condition that maybe we can do a better job of explaining the biology of breast cancer. And there is not just one type of breast cancer, like you mentioned, that there are many different subtypes. Because the, the type that you have determines the type of treatment, and that makes a difference. So can, can we just start with like the top three things that you need to know, like the type of cancer and, and all um, the genetic testing? And what top three things does a patient need to know when she's diagnosed with breast cancer or he? Yes, yes, definitely. Men can develop breast cancer too, as you mentioned. So yeah, so one of the three most important parts uh, after hearing that you have breast cancer is to know the biomarkers or the markers or the surface tags, I like to call them, on the tumor cells. And the three most important ones are the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2. And these, whether they're present or not, and how strongly are they present, really determines the type of breast cancer that you have. And we can delve into that more. Okay. And then move. Yes, we will. I definitely want to break that one down. But the second one is the genetic testing. Yes. So there are two types of genetic testing. One is genetic testing of the patient, him or herself. So what is it that makes Loriana Loriana? What is your actual building blocks, genetic information that has been passed down to you from your parents? And we do know that uh, certain patterns of genetic makeup can predispose us to certain types of breast cancer or other types of breast cancer. The last one is the OncoDX. What is OncoDX? Why do you need to know it? Why does it matter? Yes. So in addition to our own genetic makeup, then the tumor itself, in some, in, in an essence, a cancer is not, of course, you. It's, it, it's, it's its own foreign entity, and it can have a different genetic makeup. So tests such as Oncotype DX actually look at specific gene pathways within the tumor, within the breast cancer, to tell us additional information in terms of both prognosis, as well as whether there is any benefit to chemotherapy in hormonally driven or estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive breast cancers. Yeah, and see, there's so much to learn. I know when I was diagnosed after having AML leukemia, I don't even remember any of this. And so I fell into that category of people. I had no idea. I was thrown right into surgery. Well, first they said, no, we have to chase the scans. And I'm thinking, just give me chemo right away. Because with leukemia, they give you chemo right away. And they're like, no, you have to have patience. We have a lot of things that we need to study, like the OncoDX score, the genetic testing. And I'm thinking, just hook me up. Get this out of me. I want the cancer gone. And I didn't understand the whole, we have to be patient. Like, I want it gone tomorrow. And I know yep. that you've talked about that, that it's really hard for patients when you try to tell them we have to wait. Absolutely. And obviously, I can't fully understand the patient experience aspect of it, having not gone through it myself. However, I've heard from so many patients that that initial diagnosis period and the waiting for results can be quite harrowing and probably one of the toughest uh, segments of, uh, of that cancer care continuum. So it's very hard. I, I do want to normalize it and say that it's, 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 it's really tough. At the same time, I want to acknowledge it. But at the same time, I do want to say that the waiting has been shown to not be harmful. And it's actually allowing us to get precise in, information 
to be able to personalize your treatment and give you the precise treatment you need. And I think uh, recently I was at a conference talking to another breast oncologist and he said, listen, I have to tell my patients I can do something to next week and do the surgery and maybe it's the wrong decision or not, maybe not the best decision for you, or you can wait three weeks and we can do what is an even better decision for you. And insisting that this didn't happen overnight, that this has been growing a long time and still hearing that I'm like, but just get it out. Yes, we do know that breast cancers do, uh, especially hormonally driven breast cancers, typically have been in the body sometimes for years. That can be both frightening to hear, but also perhaps kind of talks about just the growth cycle of these tumor cells tends to be slower. And that is why we can kind of take our time and not jump to treatment. Um, it's, it's, I, I, I think it's one of those things where being an oncologist and being on the other side of the table, it's a completely different experience where, you know, I, I know it's okay. I know, I know this information is important, but I think, again, I think it's so important to have these dialogues and for you and people like you to share their experiences that, that, that it's just, it's no matter how many times you hear that it's okay, it can still be very hard. Yes, absolutely. And, and I know the patients lose patients with our doctors because we're trying to say, no, what we just do it, just get it. And you have to explain and we have to build that level of trust, which is another thing we always talk about that we need trust with our oncologist. I do, if I may add here that yes, patience is definitely good. However, this is where kind of being your own best advocate is also helpful because things do get sometimes slowed down in pathology circles or if tissue processing is needed. So it's also okay to reach out to your team every few days and say, I want to make sure that my specimens are being processed as expected. I think that that, that actually can help catch certain errors and delays mm -hmm. um, that would even add more time. Yeah, I, I almost wish that like, well, there are a lot more resources with breast cancer, but I know with, with leukemia, it's just kind of a cut and dry, simple, not simple, but it's the cut and dry process, like a cookie cutter almost, because they don't have many options. With breast cancer, the stressful part for a patient is there are so many different ways. If you have this marker, then you do this. If you do this, you do the surgery first, or you do the surgery second. Um, yeah. And that is overwhelming because there's no one size fits all. And then that's stressful for patients. But I do want to get back. We mentioned those top three at the beginning, like the three things you need to know about your, your diagnosis. And the surface receptors, can you break that down a little bit? Like what, what means triple negative or what means HER2, uh, um, HER2 positive? We don't, we don't have a whole, like a few hours to go through it. I know it's complex, but just the basics of what a patient needs to know. Of course, of course. So uh, let's start with the estrogen receptor and progesterone receptors. These are actually nuclear receptors inside the cell. And when there is a lot of them, that's where our hormones, including estrogen and progesterone that are present in both premenopausal and postmenopausal women, actually go and fit into these receptors. I like to think of them as a lock and key model. So they fit and open the lock and open a whole cascade of growth patterns. So about two-thirds of our breast cancers are actually driven by hormone receptors, um, typically estrogen receptor as well as progesterone. And the more strongly positive you are, and the way we define that is if 
the majority of your uh, breast cancer cells are expressing the, these locks and keys, then you're more likely to derive benefit from anti-estrogen therapies and the less likely that you'll need chemotherapy. So that's the estrogen and progesterone receptor. And then the third biomarker is PER2. I like to think of it as a growth antenna. It's a protein that picks up signals from outside of mm -hmm. the cell and transmits it inside the tumor cell, again, revving up the tumor cell to grow more rapidly. PER2 is present in low amounts in all cells, whether they're normal or cancerous. However, in about 15 to 20% of our breast cancers, there's a lot of these HER2 antennas, and these makes um, these breast cancers HER2-driven or HER2-positive or HER2-overexpressing. You're going to hear all those expressions. Um, and so um, the HER2-positive tumors uh, tend to derive a lot of benefit from specific HER2 antibodies or um, specific targeted therapies for her too. When we say triple negative, none of those three are present. So triple negative, that's what, when I try to explain to patients, I'm saying, well, if you're triple negative, you're HER2 negative, ER negative, PR negative. So there's three things. So depending on where the positive and negatives are, determine what you are and what type of, perhaps what type of treatment in the direction that you may go in for your patient. So is there a standard, like if you have a certain kind, you start with surgery first or you start with chemo first, or is it not that cut and dry? It can be. I think the HER2 positive as well as the triple negative tumors, if they're at least two centimeters or larger or have lymph node involvement, we're much more likely to treat with some type of before or preoperative treatment mm -hmm. because we have a lot of data that if we give that treatment first and observe the response, we're more likely to know, one, did we pick the right types of drugs? And two, at the back end after surgery, we can then deliver additional treatments if we didn't quite get it right. Um, whereas the hormonally driven breast cancers, we tend to, even if they're larger or lymph node positive, I think the standards are changing where we're doing much less preoperative chemotherapy and taking those tumors to surgery no matter what the size and lymph node status. Um, the reason for that is because they're such slower growing tumors, they tend to not respond very well to chemotherapy. There are situations where we may deliver preoperative anti-estrogen therapy. So both complicated and both not. Yes. Uh, but I think both the stage as well as the biology um, determine whether we treat, give treatment, systemic treatment first or after surgery. And I know the protocols are changing rapidly. For me, when I had breast cancer, I had already had with leukemia two full body rounds of, of radiation. And they said, you cannot have any more. We're not going to give you more chemo. Like you've maxed out with all the leukemia treatment, the bone marrow transplant. So we're not doing it. But with my sister, just even a year ago, even though she had her two uh, negative ERPR positive and it was lymph node involvement. It was in four lymph nodes. They did the chemotherapy first. It didn't show that she reacted much to it or responded well, that well to it. And then she did her surgery and she kept saying the whole time, why are we waiting? Why are we doing this? And it's hard, but now, and now the protocol has changed. Um, I do want to move on to when you're sitting there on the table and you hear those words. And I remember sitting even there with my sister as well, you have cancer and you're like, who, and there's a whole 
depending on where you're at, there's a, if you're at a, a large um, institution, you have a whole team of people standing in front of you. And it's the oncologist and the surgeon and the, there's so many people involved. Can you tell me who should be on your care team? Yeah, so it's absolutely a team approach for sure, exactly as you're describing. And each of us have different training and different expertise and um, and it's not all physicians either. So so I, I wanna make make sure to to really talk about the broader team. Um, who, that includes nurses, pharmacists, advanced practice providers, social workers, and many others um, who I'm not going to name every single one. Um, the physicians themselves, depending on their specialty, you will have a medical oncologist. That's somebody like me who makes recommendation and gives uh, prescriptions for the intravenous or oral drugs. You have a breast surgical oncologist or breast surgeon who actually operates um, on the breast and the axilla. And then you have a radiation oncologist who, for appropriate patients, deliver, delivers local regional radiation to the areas that had cancer. Um, we also have plastic surgeons who work closely with the breast surgeons and radiation oncologists to, to come up. Uh, with the desired cosmetic result um, that the patient is looking for. Um, so all of these individuals really do work together. And the best breast cancer care, as, as patients are going to different practices and thinking about where they want their treatment to be, I think one of the quality measures is how cohesive this team is. How often are people talking to each other and discussing your case? And uh, really coming together to come up with one unified plan. Right, and and I know it's confusing to think like, okay, after my surgery, the breast oncologist really isn't that much involved in my my uh, breast cancer. It's the breast oncologist, like yourself. Um, and mm -hmm. then you have to ask questions as well. My sister had a patient navigator who she heard from in the meeting, and then never heard from her again. And said no. And I said you have to go on the portal. Well, I don't want to go on the portal. I want to call her. She didn't have time for a million phone calls. They're overworked. They have a million patients. You're going to have to go on the portal if you're going to, because it is, I mean, every, there's stressors on both ends with when we talk about staffing issues and also cancer patients. Uh, but you do want, if you can have a patient navigator, I think that's important to ask those questions to help guide you. I'm so glad you brought up patient navigation because I think that's one of the tools that you can also gauge a cancer center by in terms of how how tightly intricately are their navigators kind of going between all these different specialties because it's a lot of information and patients who have been navigated through this process actually have been shown scientifically to do better. They have better access to different services, better clinical outcomes, less distress. And this is actually one of the presidents um, and um, uh, Joe Biden's as well as initiatives to, to really expand patient navigation services in 2024. So I think more to come on that. More to come for sure, because I think when you're at a larger healthcare institution, like I was at Johns Hopkins, I had a navigator, but not everybody has that access and that privilege and we want to make sure this the patient navigators get to the rural community. So if you don't have a navigator, uh, reach out to a nonprofit who may have a navigator on staff or find out how we can help direct you from Armour Up for Life. We can direct you to someone 
It really has to be a team effort and you do have to wave the flag and ask for help. I know we don't yes. have a lot of time, but I also want to ask, I think it's so important to ask about the lymph node involvement. So when you hear, oh, I have, and I keep referring to my sisters because her case was so different than mine and we're all different, four lymph nodes involved. So she hears, okay, you have four lymph nodes involved. Um, we're going to have surgery. And her, her um, breast surgeon removed just four. Then because of transportation issues, she had to switch to another oncologist who said, when she went to a different one said, I don't know why they took out just four. I would have taken out like eight or 10. And then the other, so then it became that they were kind of having a battling a little bit between each other of what was the right way. How do you know what is the right decision? Yes, no, it's such a great question. And I think uh, I love Loriana when you highlight some of the biggest controversies in breast cancer and management of the axilla or management of lymph nodes is actually one of them. So these are one of our gray zones where we used to essentially every patient, no matter what their stage, would go in and have 20 plus lymph nodes removed. This is called like a full axillary dissection. Mm -hmm. This is how we used to. And so what would happen? Unnecessary surgery would be done on many patients and many patients would have a lot of post-surgical complications such as lymphedema, pain and swelling and infections. So over the years, every year, this is a moving target. We continue to evaluate the evidence in terms of can we take less lymph nodes out? So it's continuing to evolve. So I don't have a precise answer to your question. However, I do encourage patients when they are given the plan of care for management of their lymph nodes or axilla, that would be the time also to explore a second opinion because there is a lot of practice variation on this. And I think we do have some newer data that for the appropriate patient, you could actually take out much less. Right. And I think that's important for patients to understand. And I didn't know going through it with her as her caregiver and really understand because now, even though they only took out four, she still had lymphedema and has to wear something on, on her arm. And that's the risk when you take out more lymph nodes. But just asking your oncologist, like how many lymph nodes and, and why do you believe that's how many I should take? Or how many, exactly. like just even engaging in that part of the conversation. Exactly. And I think this would be another topic for another show. However, yes. there, there are lots of new emerging management and preventative strategies for lymphedema. Um, so new tech, technologies in terms of measuring, measuring much more precisely. And then even type of bypass, of lymphovascular bypass to reduce the risk of lymphedema. Yeah, I, I agree. We don't, we don't have much time and I have a million questions and we have to have you on many more times after this. One thing I want to point out and I want to get your opinion is one roadblock I had is I had, I have baggage. A lot of us do. I had a, a primary cancer and breast cancer was my secondary and trying to get my, my uh, breast oncologist to talk to my leukemia oncologist who wanted to just do a lumpectomy and the leukemia oncologist said, no, you've already had full body radiation. Just take them off, take them out. You're high risk. But just getting them to talk and, and acknowledge, I, I don't have my own DNA. I have a history. I can't, I mean, my history is different. How important is it to get your doctors to bring up your comorbidities, your history, to help you help us? Yeah, it's so important. And I think um, inquiring about a tumor board is, is one way where I think all these different specialties can get together and talk about your clinical situation. 
So asking whether your clinical case has been discussed in a multidisciplinary tumor board is one question the audience could ask. The second is um, we're all humans and sometimes these electronic medical records can get gigantic. And I know you do this yourself, Loriana, is, is really knowing your own history and comorbidities and even pointing it out. I, I, I feel torn even saying this because, you know, perfectionist in me says, well, of course, I need to know every medical condition that my patient has had. But the truth is, it actually does help when patients kind of point out things that maybe we we, we, we kind of glossed over. So, so feeling free to point out your chronic medical conditions and knowing all the things that you've gone through is actually really important. I remember saying to them, wait, you can't have me spit in a tube or do my blood because to test and see my genetic markers. I have my sister's DNA. I'm not me. I'm her. And they were saying, oh, okay. So I had to advocate for myself. So I encourage not everyone have a bone marrow transplant or have different DNA. And thank God you don't, but do advocate and remind them of what your history is. We are pretty much out of time, but if you have some final thoughts of anything you'd like to add, I know we need you on plenty more times, but just for breast cancer 101, any final thoughts to newly diagnosed patients trying to master survival? So I think um, my, my, my take-home point would be to not be afraid to ask questions. This is absolutely your right. And even if you don't come up with the questions during that first or second visit, really do use the patient portal or make additional appointments. Don't be afraid of second opinions. We're all used to it. We encourage it. Um, and um, really, the plan should be clear to you, and it should make sense to you. Uh, And if it's not making sense, it's okay to say so. Wonderful advice, Dr. Miriam Lesberg. I adore you. I love you. I'm so glad we met at one of the conferences, SABCS, and I can't wait to have you on again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Stage Free. Join us every week for a new podcast featuring thought leaders and experts who will help cancer survivors not only survive, but ultimately thrive throughout treatment and recovery as they learn how to master survival. Learn more about us at armorupforlife.org.